Well, let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we come with thanks that your word addresses us. And as it does, it teaches us and refreshes us. Please, again, by the things that I've prepared, please teach us and please equip us that we might understand better your purposes and how these things that unfold in our lives fit together. For the glory of our Saviour's name we pray. Amen. So we're following this short series which I began last week and we'll do again next week and then in two weeks' time on the tensions in the Christian life. Considering that the Christian life is not a smooth passage across a tranquil sea, which is sometimes how some people will have presented it and maybe will do so in the future. But it's instead a life of tension. I'm not thinking about tension as in the sense of feeling anxiety or feeling tense, but tension as in holding two truths together that are true, that seem to be opposite, but yet are true. Both at the same time, one in each hand. We began last week by thinking about the path to freedom being found through submission to Jesus. Come to Christ as Lord, have him take his yoke upon you and you will be totally free, fully free to serve him always and forever. This morning we come to this second tension that's found between joy and sorrow. And begin with the question, is the Christian life one where joy dominates or sorrow dominates? How would you answer that? Now there have been certainly periods in church history in which this question would have been quite absurd. In the past, Christians have often been caricatured as killjoys and wowsers with a grave solemnity written all over their faces. Serious, sober people. But in more recent times, you might think, well, the pendulum might have swung the other way. One of the local Pentecostal churches in Bendigo is called Enjoy. And maybe that gives you a hint or two about the current state of play. What is the Christian meant to be like? Are we meant to go around looking pained and sober, stiff upper lip, grinning through all our trials? Or at the other extreme, grinning like a Cheshire cat, with no thought to sorrow and no sadness whatsoever? Are we meant to be glum or glib? The answer is neither. Because both joy and sorrow a part and parcel of what it means to live out the Christian life. As the preacher said way back in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a time to laugh, there is a time to weep. And yet, are we not followers of the one who truly knew what it was to rejoice in his spirit 
and yet was called a man of sorrows. Now, usually, if you've heard me preach before, you know that I always have a text to pin my message on, but today is going to be an exception. If you must have a text, uh, let me direct you to the one on the front of the service sheet, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul describes himself and other believers as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy and sorrow, opposites, held together in tension. Well, let's consider them under these two points and then I want to make some applications. First, it's clear from the scriptures that the Christian life is a life of joy. The text I give for this point, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. So says Paul to us from prison. He also tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So the catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer being to enjoy God and glorify him forever. So obvious is this thought that it really needs no more explanation, does it? But let me go on regardless with Christmas just behind us, and consider afresh the words of the angels who said they came with good news of great what? Joy for all the people. Consider how Psalm 16 tells us that in God's presence is fullness of joy. Remember how Jesus taught that he wanted his disciples to have joy to the fullest. You'll find that in John 15, 11, John 16, 24, and John 17:13 We could move to Paul who said that joy is one of the fruits of the spirit and he prayed that God would fill believers everywhere with all joy in believing in Romans 15:13 In Romans 14:17 he wrote that the kingdom of God is righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit Of course, there are matters known to us that should always bring us great joy. There is joy in the Christian life through peace with God, a joy through the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, a joy in the experience of fellowship with God and with one another. There is joy in the hearing and the receiving the word of God and we are taught that we should receive that word with much joy. There's joy in seeing sinners repent. In fact, even one sinner who repents brings much joy in heaven to the angels. So there's joy on earth and there's joy as there will be in heaven. Of course, there's joy in God himself who satisfies the longing soul as we've just sung about, who fills the hungry soul with good things so that we have to say, yes, the Christian life is one of joy. I remember reading some years ago in the UK about a certain organist who had to plead with the Salvation Army drummer not to hit his drum so hard, only to have the beaming man reply, Lord bless you, sir, since I've been converted, I'm so happy I could bust this blooming drum. There are times, of course, in the Christian life 
when joy overwhelms. Times, moments, glimpses. Glimpses of what heaven will be. Moments when prayers are answered. And then and there joy has been the theme. Not a fake stuck-on grin, a smile through gritted teeth, but that kind of joy that is known in any circumstance that might have brought others to a sense of despair. We find it in the story of Paul and Silas, don't we, in Acts 16. In jail, fastened in stocks, in the inner cells, praising God with all their might, lifting their voices joyfully to the Lord. Circumstances might have suggested that this was a time to mope and to mourn, to lick your wounds, but theirs was an expression of pure, unadulterated joy in Christ that the world doesn't know. Humanity, of course, has turned to other sources to find joy, but all of them are dry. The well is dry when it comes to the world. Perhaps we could note where joy cannot be found. Not in unbelief. Voltaire, the great atheist, wrote, I wish I had never been born. It's not found in pleasure. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure if anyone did. He wrote, the worm, the canker and the grief are mine alone. Not in money. Jay Gould was an American millionaire. He had plenty of money. When dying, he said, I think I am the most miserable man on the face of this earth. Not in position and fame. Lord Beaconsfield had more than his share of both. He wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood a regret, sorry, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Not in military glory, Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day. Having done so, he wept in his tent before he said, there are no more worlds for me to conquer. Where is real joy found? Well, the answer is simple. It's in Christ. Hear the testimony of a third century believer who wrote this on his deathbed, a third century believer. He said, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of any sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are the masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Surely, if you were in a debate, you could argue the Christian life is a life of great inexpressible joy, said Peter in his letter. But secondly, to show you the tension, let's consider that the Christian life is a life of sorrow. And the text I point to you is James 4.9, where we are commanded this. Have you read this lately? 
Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now James had a particular reason for writing that. And surely that's a text that might well address the balance that needs to be addressed. Maybe there should be fewer grins and more weeping among God's people. So from the one hand we can sing that we serve the Lord with gladness. We can also say with the Apostle Paul that we serve the Lord with all humility and with many tears. So let's think about that. Let's think about tears in our, in our lives, the place of tears. What are the appropriate circumstances when we should cry? Well, think on these. There are tears of nature, that is to say of natural sorrow. Tears because we are human. Tears we shed which are common to all people. For example, tears when friends or relatives part. We have to say goodbye. Such is the sorrow that Timothy felt when Paul was arrested for the second time and Timothy couldn't restrain his tears or when the Ephesian elders to whom Paul was saying goodbye said to them that they were going to see his face for the last time. How they wept on the beach at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20 verse 47. There are tears of bereavement when Jesus himself at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, what does it say? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. Added to it the sorrow that comes with our own mortality as we see all the, frail, the frailty and the fragility of our human bodies and we know what it is to groan in pain. The Apostle Paul writes of this in Romans 8, 22 and 23 and 2 Corinthians 5, 2. He says, in this body we groan. Is that your experience? From pain in your body decaying. Tears of nature, tears of bereavement. There's the general sorrow of trials. Trials we are to endure in this life. Probably that which the psalmist was referring to in Psalm 56 verse 8 when he spoke of the Lord who keeps track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one of them in your book. Of course, there's nothing at all wrong with believers shedding tears for any or all of these reasons. The only thing we're warned about in the scriptures is that we're not to mourn as those who have no hope. We're not forbidden to weep. The gospel does not rob us of our humanity. It makes us more human, just exactly what we ought to be in Christ. There are tears of penitence and repentance. You'll all know the gospel story of the woman who stood behind Jesus when he was reclining at a meal in a friend's house. And she stood weeping and began to wet his feet with her tears. These were tears of penitence for her sin. These were tears of gratitude for forgiveness. 
Such tears are not just found when we first come to know the Lord, but all through the Christian life, at times when not so much the joy of heaven breaks through, but the gentle push of the Holy Spirit, urging us towards ongoing repentance, and that often with tears. David Brainerd was a missionary who worked hard, even to death, among the Indians of America. When he was still a very young man, he wrote this in his diary. In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted in my heart and I so bitterly mourned my own exceeding sinfulness and vileness. I never before have felt pungent and deeper sense of the odious nature of sin like today. He was a balanced believer He wasn't prone to being morbid. His journal reveals his godliness with evident times of deep penitence that made him weep over the continued corruption in his own heart. Do you weep at your own heart? And there are tears of compassion. Paul said we ought to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Have you ever done that? Have you wept with someone weeping? Have you ever been moved by compassion to enter into the pain of someone's heart? I have to confess that there are probably more non-Christians who've shed tears of compassion than I ever have. And I say that to my shame. We ought not be so insulated from the sufferings of the world that we don't feel for people in all walks of life and even more so, God's people. Wasn't this the reason they called the prophet Jeremiah the weeping prophet? One who foresaw what would come to God's people because of unbelief and rejection of his word? You could say this about the Lord Jesus himself who wept over the city of Jerusalem because he did not know the time of its visitation. Or Paul who wept tears for the rejection of the gospel amongst his own country folk, his country people. So it is that Bishop Ryle wrote of George Whitfield, the great preacher of the 18th century. They could not hate the man who wept so much over their souls. Or consider what they said of D.L. Moody that it was considered that Moody had a right to preach the gospel because he could never speak of a lost soul without tears in his eyes. So there are all these kinds of tears and yet tears of divine jealousy. By this, a strong intolerant zeal for the name of God and the honour of God and the glory of God. For when God is said to be a jealous God, it means that he's intolerant of rivals. He will not give his glory to another. So whenever we pray that the name of God may be honoured, we are feeling that jealousy of God. It's this that caused the psalmist to write. Psalm 119, streams of tears flow from my eyes because your word is not obeyed. This is what Paul meant when writing to the Philippians chapter 3 verse 18. For as I've often told you before and now tell you with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Here we see examples of believers so concerned for the glory of the name of God that they dare not see the law of God trampled underfoot, giving yet another reason why the Christian life is also a life of sorrow. For we live in a world where the Lord's name is not honoured and his word is not wanted. There are the two, in a rough nutshell. How do we resolve these things? How do we resolve this tension between joy and sorrow? Let me bring you two simple suggestions about finding a way to do so. The first is to keep rejoicing in what you know now. Keep rejoicing in what we know now. That which Christ has already gained for us. What we already know and experience on earth here below. Things such as the forgiveness of sins and the rich fellowship we have with God and the fellowship with one another that we enjoy and the enjoyment of the indwelling Spirit of God and the knowledge that all things are always in his hands. We ought to rejoice greatly in the measure of victory that Christ has won for us. But let me say this too, because there's a fundamental error which undermines this truth. And that's the idea that the Christian life is all smiles and is no tears and is all happy, happy, happy. Sadly, is a misunderstanding of God's plan of salvation. It's a false assumption that God's saving work is finished, that its benefits may be enjoyed to the full today, that there is no need for any more tears caused by sickness or suffering. So I want to say it with all the conviction I possess, this is just not true. God's saving work is not yet done. There is no question that when Christ died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And by his resurrection, he completed the work of redemption that he came to do. That's true. But the fruits of this salvation have not yet been gathered in. And they won't be gathered into the barn until Christ comes with power, with glory. For until that great day, the continued effects of the fall of man into sin will continue. Remember Matthew 13, the wheat and the weeds will grow together right up to the end of the age. And there will be times then, until that day, when Psalm 126 is true, weeping will endure for the night. The ravages of sin have not yet been eradicated, either in the world, let alone in us. And so we we still live in a fallen world that is full of sorrow because it's full of suffering and it's full of the effects of sin. To push that aside and to tell everyone and others that this is heaven here is surely to be living in cuckoo land. If this is heaven, I don't want to be here. It's to pretend that the final victory has already happened 
when it hasn't. It's to imagine that we can experience the end before the end has come. The day's not yet. We live in the now. And we must and will face the continuance of sorrow in our lives, yet also to be, as our text says, what is it? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoice in what you know now, like David did. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Forget not all his benefits. But secondly, and following on from that, just one step more, let's keep rejoicing in what is to come. The now and the not yet. Thank God that the day is coming when there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. And God will wipe away all tears from our eyes, as written in Revelation 7, 19 and 21, verse 4. Because then and only then will the kingdom of God have been fully consummated. There will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's people will have been totally redeemed and there will be no more sin and there will be no more death. Look through the New Testament and you'll see this strong link between the joy and the hope we have in Christ, a hope that none can take from us because as we heard from 1 Peter 1 this morning, we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us where it's not going to be subject to rust or decay. It will never fade or be snatched away from us. And this hope is set before us is surely the counterweight balance that we need to keep us from feeling the sorrow of this world. We have the counterweight balance in what's ahead. This is not our home. We're going home. What Christ has won can never be lost. The psalm we heard this morning said, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Therefore we remember that we are living in the interim period between the now and the not yet, between the inauguration and the consummation of the victory won by Christ. We're living in between D-Day and V-Day. In the Second World War, those terms were understood. So too was the fact that in between D-Day and V-Day, V standing for Victory Day, there was still much blood shed and many tears. And that's where we find ourselves now, brothers and sisters, in this period of time between his resurrection and ascension and his glorification. And because of that, it is certain that joy and sorrow will continue. Joy because we know the hope that is set before us and sorrow because we know that the path to get to that hope is through suffering and it will continue to the end of all things. And we as God's people are caught up in this tension between what is and what shall be. And although we enter the kingdom of God through many trials and face sorrow in them, yet at the same time we always know that joy is at hand. Sorrowful, but yet 
rejoicing. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that we are in your hands. If we had no joy, life would be unbearable. But also if we had no sorrow, then we would become completely unhinged, our head in the clouds, unable to be of any witness to anyone. Grant, Lord, that we might find this balance as we rejoice in what you have done for us in the past, as we rejoice in the present experience we have of you right now through Jesus Christ, your Son, and as we hope for and long for the fulfilment of all things when Christ is revealed in glory. And so we ask, help us to put our trust in you when sorrow comes. May we also find the things to rejoice in, these things that can never be taken from us, truths that can never be shaken. Help us build on a firm foundation so that when sorrow comes, we're not surprised, but we welcome it and wait for the day to see you transform it so that Christ will be all in all. Grant us this because we cannot do this by ourselves and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.